Let's pray together today. And Lord, we are thankful to you for all the rich truths from the Scriptures that have already been expressed in these hymns and songs. And we trust that today you would work in a special way that you work when your church is gathered in the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word is taught. That these truths wouldn't just be something that we can reproduce in our brains or with our tongue, but they would go down into our very soul and into our hearts. That we would be Christians who, who know you by heart, who love the things that you love, who hate the things that you hate, who care deeply about your purposes in this world and who experience your life. We just, uh, I ask for you to help us now in this time uh, that these things would be accomplished for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to know God by heart, that's what we've been talking about. If you want to know God by heart, then you need to think deeply about what God is like. In particular today, we want to talk, and we've been singing about this, we want to talk about this, about the sovereignty of God and His providence. The sovereignty of God and His providence. Now, those might not be words that you often use, but they're words frequently used in Christian thinking, and you should be aware of them. And certainly the ideas behind them are things that should be something that are really, things that are really important to you. Nothing in the world happens by accident. God is in control of leaders. God is in control of presidents. God is in control of judges. Nothing happens by accident. God is involved in the smallest details of the lives of common people like you and I. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord has established His throne above the heavens. He, His sovereignty, rules over all. But our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115 and verse 3. I know the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Psalm 135 verses 5 and 6. Psalm 10 says the Lord is king forever and ever. That's repeated again in Psalm 29. The Lord shall reign forever. Psalm 146. Psalm 103. And verse 19 again says, The Lord has established His throne in the heaven, and His kingdom rules over all, over all the other kingdoms. The Bible says His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, it says this, in a benediction Paul wrote, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory, honor, and glory forever and ever. Christians know, Bible-believing Christians know, nothing happens by accident. Bible-believing Christians don't really believe in luck, even though sometimes they, they say that. They don't believe that. We believe nothing happens by accident. And there's no such a thing as luck. A cowboy once applied for insurance, they say. So the agent routinely says, have you had any accidents recently? And the cowboy says, nope, no accidents at all. He says, I was bitten by a rattlesnake and a horse kicked me in the ribs and that laid me up for a while. And the agent says, aren't those accidents? He goes, no, I'm pretty sure they did them on purpose. (laughs) And the cowboy realized there are no such thing as accidents. Christians know the same thing. The scriptures say, like we read in Psalm 103, he's sovereign over the whole universe. He's in control of everything in the universe. 
He's in control of the physical world. Jesus said that you may be sons of your Father which is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust alike. God is in control of the universe. He's in control of all the physical world. He's in control of the affairs of nations. Psalm 66, 7 says, He rules by His power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Scriptures teach that human success, human failures, and human destiny are all under God's control. Paul is talking about from my mother's womb. And in Luke 1, 52, he has put down the mighty. This is in Mary's prayer. He has put down the mighty from thrones, and he has exalted the lowly. The Scriptures teach that God is the protector of his people. He's a sovereign God. He's in control of everything. Jerry Dennis is an author I love to read. He's a Michigan author. He doesn't know the Lord. My son and I have both corresponded with him about the things of the Lord and in admiration for his writing. He just doesn't know the Lord yet. He writes beautifully about nature, but, but he doesn't, doesn't know the God of nature. He, one summer I was sitting on uh, the beach in West Michigan, and I was reading his beautiful, uh, at the time, new book on the living Great Lakes. And I, I came across a passage in the book that, He wrote this. He's talking about being a student in Marquette. And he went off for a weekend in search of new places. And near Munising, he says, I hiked to a remote section of the shore and I camped on a slab of rock so close to the water that the spray of the waves nearly reached me. I spent two days and two nights there tending a driftwood fire. And it barely pushed back the cold. Mostly I just watched the waves batter the rocks with hammer blows. Trains of waves, ransom, random breakers rose and fell. And this is what he wrote. At some point that weekend, he's a college student, right? At some point that weekend, I concluded that the lake's indifference to my welfare was more terrible than any malevolence I could imagine. So you and I might well look at the rolling waves and go, isn't God powerful? He looked at the rolling waves and said, isn't nature mean isn't it angry? It's malevolent. Malevolent, he said. I had great. It had. I had greater implications. I, he said, who had assumed such significance for myself, had none. How could it be? I wondered at this bizarre accumulation of atoms and molecules that I called myself, and the inexplicable spark that animated it mattered so little. Where would the spark go when I was dead? What proof would there be that I had ever lived? When I read that passage, I thought it sounded a lot like a young shepherd boy out in the pasture. said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have ordained, who am I? And what is man? But he rendered to a different conclusion. Jerry Dennis was talking about sailing. He sailed a sailboat all throughout all of the Great Lakes, and this is the way he arranged his writing in his book. He said, it wasn't the first time I considered such matters, certainly not the last, but it it made a powerful impression on me, and so I shared the story with Hojo, a guy that he was sailing with, because I assumed he must have had similar realizations many a time while sailing in the oceans, and who better than a sailor pondering the mysteries of the universe? When better than during a night sea journey? I watched those waves for two solid days, I said, and for the first time I realized that the dark secret of life that one of my, that my parents were so careful to keep from me was that nature doesn't care at all about me. 
Only he said it in a bit more profane way. And so Hojo stood huddled beside the helm, his face hidden by the hood of his parka, and he said nothing for a few minutes. And I thought he must be wondering, why hadn't I mentioned God? Where was God in the story? Where was God in any story? You see, people who don't believe in God, then they're forced to believe that the whole universe is just a, a random series of happenings which generally can turn hard against you. But Bible-believing Christians know that the God who controls the orbits of the planets and the placement of the stars and the rise and fall of nations, he's involved in intimately in every human life. You've heard of Layman Strauss, the great Bible teacher. His son, Richard Strauss, is also a great Bible teacher. Get the name in your brain. Strauss. Remember that. It's going to be important in a minute. So the Richard Strauss family is praying for a dog. They're praying and praying. Their kids are praying, and the dad's like, we don't really need a dog because if we have a dog, it's going to make a mess on the carpets, and it's going to interfere with our schedule. The little boy says, Dad, let's just pray that if God wants us to have a dog, he'll give us a dog that's already housebroken and a a kind, like, social dog because pastors have people over a lot. So a dog comes to the door, and he has a tag on his collar, and the tag says, Levi. Get it? Strauss. Levi Strauss. So the kid says, it's God. Obviously, answering my prayer. And the parents are like, well, let's not assume that. It has a rightful owner. They go to the owner, they, they bring the dog back, and they say, you know, your dog's straight over to our house. We really love your dog, but we realize it belongs to you. Isn't it odd? Your dog's named Levi, and our name is Strauss. Oh, yes. And they said, you know, and if you ever need a good home for that dog, you let us. And they said, you know, it's funny you should mention, because we really have been looking for a good home for the dog. They said, well, we'll go home, and we'll think about it, and we'll get together tomorrow. And that night, the dog strayed away and came back again. So Richard Strauss says in this delightful little story, they discovered when they got the papers for the dog, he was conceived at the approximate time that our son began to pray for a dog. He was born on my wife's birthday. He was also an honor graduate from obedience school. And no one will ever convince us that Levi's coming was anything other than the gracious work of our sovereign God. That's just the way Christians think. They realize that fate isn't in control of their life. God is in control of every intimate detail of their life. Not just the placement of the suns and stars, but also the events that unfold in every day of our lives. This is the doctrine of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of the providence of God. Bible-believing Christians realize there is no such thing as luck and nothing happens by accident. Christians who know God by heart, they think often and deeply about the sovereignty of God. They love to sing about the sovereignty of God. They love to think about the providence of God. Men and nations are under His control. Common men and kings. How wonderful, how worship-stimulating is that? Look in your Bible in the book of Acts and chapter 17. Let me just read a passage from a sermon by Paul in Acts chapter 17. Listen now as Paul tells people about where they came from and where they're going. Acts chapter 17. Look in verse 22. Paul stands in the midst of the Areopagus 
And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, listen, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He says, gesturing to temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Listen, and has determined the pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwelling. That's interesting. The God, the unknown God, He's the one who's, who has determined the pre-appointed times and boundaries of the dwellings of men, that they should seek the Lord and hope they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets said, we also are His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. The God of the universe is the God of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the creator and judge of the universe. And He ordained everything, controls everything, including the redemptive plan, and He will sit on the ultimate throne to judge in an ultimate way, in the ultimate day. Paul said that in Acts chapter 17. God is in charge and He is involved. This is the sovereignty of God. This is the providence of God. These truths are expressed with these theological terms, sovereignty and providence. He's in absolute control. That's his sovereignty. And he's engaged in making all the affairs and decisions of men, even their darkest sins, serve his holy and ultimate purposes. In a week like this, it's wonderful to consider that. So divine providence is the governance of God by which He with wisdom and love cares or directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God's in complete control of all things. He can exercise His providence because He is sovereign. I'm just saying this. If you want to know God by heart, this is a doctrine that you want to think about a lot. You want to listen for it when you sing your songs. You want to see it when you read the Scripture. The, the, it, to to be God means that you are sovereign. And only God is sovereign, obviously. God is subject to no one, influenced by no one, absolutely independent. He does what He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases. No one can thwart Him, none can hinder Him. So His own word expressly states in Isaiah 46.10, My counsel will stand, and I will do all my pleasure. He does according to His will in the armies of heaven and on the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay His hand. You'll see that in Daniel chapter 4. And this is a message that may spill over into next Sunday as we get to the, um, uh, the Independence Day weekend, and we talk about the King of Kings and the ruler of all nations. Divine sovereignty means that God is God, in fact, as well as in his name, that he's on the throne of the universe, he's directing all things, and he 
The Bible says in Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So if we're going to know God by heart, we've got to know the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is absolutely sovereign. There are people that often will say things like this. You'll hear them. You heard them this week, commonly, in social discourse. Um, the God that I know, the Jesus that I follow would not do this or not say that. Or, or he would all, often do this or not do that. The Jesus, that my, my God wouldn't do that or say that or believe this or, or demand that or expect this, right? You hear that in common. Isn't that common here? Not my God. That's, they're right. They're right. It's not their God. And their God then isn't the God of the Bible. They, they, it's a God they fabricated out of their, uh, their own context or out of their popular opinion or out of emotional opinions. And that's not knowing God. Knowing God is knowing what God, how God revealed himself in the Bible and embracing that. Anything other than that is what the Bible is just for, is for millennia. It's called idolatry. It's, a, it's having a false God. And, it's, and I think it was Calvin said, the human heart's an idol factory, which is what we do. Listen when people talk. Listen to your, even, even professing Christians as they talk or, or tweet or, or Facebook or, or whatever they, however they communicate. And you'll, you'll notice that they often appeal to logic or reason or fairness or feelings or emotions and not as often to careful understanding what the Bible actually says about God. And that's dangerous. So what seems right to our minds, which may have been warped by our rebellious world, is not what matters. What matters is what God has revealed, what God has said. He has spoken. He doesn't change. So listen to people when they talk, especially in a doctrine like the sovereignty of God. And you will often hear people, when they're talking about the sovereignty of God, use terms like, I think, I feel, or the God that I follow, or... And, they, and, and I'm like, I'm waiting to hear what? A Bible verse or two. A passage of Scripture. Let's talk about the Bible. It doesn't matter what I feel or how you think. Uh, what matters is what the scriptures reveal. Let's talk about what the Bible actually says. Listen, when people talk about God, and, and certainly the truth about God should reach the deepest place of our affections, but it should be rooted in what God has revealed about himself from the Bible. What you believe and how you govern your life needs to be on a solid rock of what God has revealed is true, not on just how you feel or what you think or what's popular around you. God forbid that we should go with the whims of whatever is popular around us because the world we're living in is going fast to hell. I, I heard a pastor, a, a pretty good guy, an expository preacher, preaching once on Acts chapter 13. It was really well done, a, a good treatment of, of Acts 13. He was a fine guy in a lot of ways, though he was not strong on this doctrine of God's sovereignty. It was in Acts chapter 13. So there's a little phrase in Acts chapter 13. I was really curious about how he was going to deal with it. Those who are appointed unto eternal life believe. This was a phrase that has to do with God's sovereignty and, and salvation, right? And so he was describing every phrase, every passage of that, every you know, uh, little part of that passage. Then he got there. And he said, this is a difficult doctrine that we don't have time to deal with today. And then he moved on. And I went, wait, wait, wait. I, in my mind, I'm like, that was the fun part. You skipped the fun part. I respectfully disagree with my brother. The contemplation of the sovereignty of God is worth our time. It is who God is. How he's revealed himself is the fuel of our worship. And we were made 
to worship. So we don't want to deal with that later. Pastor Tony Evans says, Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. Isn't that beautiful? Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. It's God sitting behind the steering wheel of our time. Providence refers to God's governance of all events so as to direct them toward his end. It is God taking what you and I will call luck, chance, mistakes, happenstance, and stitching them together together into achieving his program. History is nothing more than his story. Pastor Kent Hughes said, the God of Scripture is not simply a God of miracles who occasionally injects miraculous power into our life. It's far greater than that because he arranges all of life to suit and to affect his providence. This makes all of life a miracle. And what we see as tangled threads, God is weaving into beautiful tapestries. I know that you heard that wonderful story that Corey Tenboom tells about how, as a little girl, she began to wrap her mind around the sovereignty of God when she saw, I think it was her grandmother doing tapestry, and it was just confusing because all she saw were the dark and tangled threads from the floor. And it wasn't until her grandmother would pull her up into her lap that she could see that her grandmother was creating a beautiful picture. And so it was as dark things began to unfold in Corey Tenboom's life that she felt confusion, sad and heartache, but she realized one day that God would draw her up into his lap and he would, she would then see what a beautiful, beautiful picture that he was making, even with the dark threads of her life. And she wrote a poem. Did you know that? I will not charge you extra today to read it. Here we go. Here's what she wrote. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget. He sees the upper and I the underside. Now till the loom is silent and the shutters cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful and the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver and the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares, and nothing this truth condemns. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. How do you help people? Well, a wise counselor is someone who can help another person see the sovereign purposes of God in their life. You say, well, life has been hard on me. People haven't been loyal to me or kind. I've had people betray me or hurt me, you know. Maybe some of you here today, your wife has hurt you or betrayed you. Your husband, your children have hurt you or disappointed you. Your parents treated you in a way that a parent should never. Or maybe you feel a, a, a temptation to feel a disappointment with God himself. One of the best things anybody could ever do for you is just help you to try to understand God's good and sovereign purposes for what's happening in your life. If you want to help people, help them understand the sovereignty of God. Often in counseling, I've helped had a person just go back and study the sovereignty of God in the lives of people like Job or Joseph or Paul or Peter or Esther or Ruth or Jesus. Follow the thread of God's providence through the lives of those people who God used to so powerfully impact our world. And you'll be more encouraged in the things that God's allowed to happen in your life that may very well have broken your heart. J.B. Phillips, a British theologian of a generation ago, wrote a small book and the message of the book is contained in its title, Your God is Too Small. And that's the problem with most of us when we're overwhelmed by the betrayal in our life or overwhelmed by maybe our underemployment or our financial difficulties or our health struggles, it's because, at least for a moment, our God is just too small. And we need to see how powerful 
God is that he's so powerful and so wise and so sovereign. His providence is so profound that he can actually take even the things that people intend for evil and make them work out toward good. We know the Romans 8, 28 and 29. Because God is sovereign, evil is temporary. And because God is sovereign, evil will be judged, all of it. And because God is sovereign, evil can be transformed into his good purposes like it was in the case of his own son, the Lord Jesus. And so it is in Daniel. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. And I want you to see, and this will be um, a bit of a flyover, but... Think about this wonderful book of Daniel. How many of you are named Daniel? Let the Daniels all raise their hands. Daniel's in the house. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Daniel. That's a great name right there. I would be so happy if my name was Daniel. Especially reading this book. What a great name. We have a Daniel. And may God make every young man in our church a Daniel. Every young woman have the spirit of Daniel. Here's this person who's pulled into a very pagan culture. Hey, in Babylon, all the Supreme Court rulings were violations of God's law. He was brainwashed against the things of God. But he had the, whole, the spirit of a holy God within him. And in that culture, he still stood for what was right and good. He stood with a square shoulders and... And, and he obeyed God and had the power of God on his life. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends refused to defile themselves. And every young man, every young woman will have an opportunity to defile themselves. And God, even though he was a long way from home and loved ones and, and from temple and from the worship of God, and even though they even forced him to have a different name and physically abused him and sexually mutilated him, still he would not defile himself determined by God's grace and help to be a person that lives in modern Babylon but will not defile themselves. And so he and his friends would got together in prayer and they prayed together so that they wouldn't defile themselves. That's Daniel chapter 1 and they were 10 times better. Daniel chapter 2, there was this dream and Daniel interpreted it and it was a dream of the rise and fall of empires and that God is in control of the rise and fall of empires. And in Daniel chapter 3, they were, there was this image that was uh, erected and they were commanded to bow down to it and, and the young men wouldn't bow. And you, how, you know how the old pastors say they wouldn't bow and they wouldn't burn either. Thrown into the fiery furnace, they, God were sovereign, sovereignly, providentially protected their lives. And then you get to Daniel chapter 4 and that's a really odd and wonderful piece. It's Nebuchadnezzar now talking about the things that he's starting to learn. And he has another dream, and he calls for an interpretation of the dream for the people that normally interpret his dreams, and they can't help him. And then he remembers this Daniel. And so he calls for Daniel, and he says, I'm calling you because I know the spirit of the holy gods. is Young people, I say this with great love for you. Would anybody ever say the spirit of God is in him about you? Or would they say, no, it's the spirit of the world. Well, they say the spirit of God is in her. The spirit of God is on her. The spirit of God is in him. But it can be. You know, that's a promise of the Bible that we can be indwelt and empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter how much money you make in life or what else you accomplish. If you don't have the life of God in you, you're worse than a miserable failure. You gain the whole world and you lose your own soul. Here was Daniel 
They went to him. Nebuchadnezzar goes to him. He interprets the dream, and he, he basically says, I hate to tell you this. This, this. I wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy, but you're going to lose your mind, and you're going to go out like a... You're going to go out like an animal in the field until you humble yourself. And then if you pray to God and you put away your sins and if you are tenderhearted toward the poor, then maybe God will forgive you and will restore your kingdom. Then that's what happens, right? Exactly what happens. But the, but the story in Daniel 4, Daniel is not the speaker, right? Nebuchadnezzar is the speaker in the story. And he's just standing up. He's proclaiming the following things about God. God is in control of big things. He's involved in little things. He's involved in the rise and fall of nations. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king speaking. To all the people's nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. That wasn't very politically correct, was he? To all the people's nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation, he says. Then he tells the story about how he arrived at that conclusion. When he gets to chapter 4 and... and um, Verse 17, notice what he says. This decision is by the decree of the watchers uh, that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. That's interesting. Some people say the Bible is an irrelevant book and this has never been irrelevant. Like I have the Bible in one hand, I watch the news, I have the remote in the other hand. And the Bible makes sense of my world. Yours? Verse 25. They'll drive you from men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field until you know the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Verse 32. They'll drive you from men and your dwelling will be with beasts in the field. You'll eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and He gives it to whomever He chooses. This is obviously the point of the story, right? Notice verse 36. The same time my reason returned, Nebuchadnezzar says, the glory of my kingdom, the honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and an excellent majesty was added to me. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, praised and extolled and honored the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. God is in control of the big things. He's involved in the little things. He's in control of nations and kings and common men like you and I. And so about the Supreme Court ruling, uh, my heart just was broken. Anybody who loves God and who loves America has to have a broken heart over what happened in America this week. Not just the ruling which was directly counter to the commands of God and the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, but the celebration of this, the celebration even in the iconic, the White House of the United States of America Pastor at Woodside Bible Church uh, issued a statement like a lot of Christian leaders did, did a good job, we issued a clear statement about it. E.J. Swanson, some of you know, is on staff at Woodside Bible Church. I, I happen to notice that he made a comment on Facebook where the, under, he's one of the pastoral staff members there, and he made a comment under what the pastor had said, a good biblical statement about that. And then a young man 
who, who I don't know, I guess from the state of Pennsylvania, who was, you know, in a fog and didn't morally know. You know, the Bible says the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't know Christ. So they don't get it. Young man wrote an antagonistic comment. And then EJ, if you know EJ, you know his heart. He responded like Christians should respond. In a, he said, please let me sit down with you and talk with you. He buy you a, a cup of coffee. And the, the boy said, no. And I, I wrote, you, you, you just passed up a great opportunity. EJ is a wonderful guy to spend time with. You probably get free coffee out of it. The, the boy wrote back, I, I can't meet with you. I'm in Pennsylvania. EJ wrote back, don't you love this? I'm reporting a Facebook conversation in the pulpit. Don't you love this? EJ, EJ wrote back, though, I'm gonna, it just happens, it just happens that I'm going to be in Pennsylvania next week in the city of Philadelphia. And I will pay your way to come and see me if you do. Christians, they're not hateful. Christians aren't hateful. Christians aren't sinless. Christians are compassionate people who care about people who struggle with dark sins and confusion. That's what Christians are. That's what real Christians are. Christians are people that are not saying to people, there is no way to go to hell. They're saying there is a way not to go to hell. Christians are that way. But Christians aren't silent when it comes time to speak, and they're not unwilling. Real Christians are not unwilling to suffer. We're about to find out who the real Christians are. But Christians aren't shrill and ugly and hateful. And shouldn't be shrill and ugly and and mean and hateful, but they should be people of conviction. And if your heart isn't broken about this, you may not have the Spirit of God dwelling in you because people who love Jesus love His commandments. It would be good to examine yourself and to remember that there's going to be a time when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Even though you called me Lord, Lord, I never knew you. He said, don't call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say. And so the plot in America is thickening. Someone has said it, Owen Strachan, he said this, America is the new Rome. But, but he said, but let's remember this. Let's remember that it was Rome where the gospel slipped its cage and wreaked havoc on the kingdom of darkness. That's the spirit that we ought to have. Nick, this is the world you're going to go be a pastor in, right? We need guys like you. Yeah, we got, got your training, and it's going to be a hard battle for you. This whole church is behind you, praying for you. It's going to be guys like you that will have to take this truth into a generation that does not know God. So God help you and my kids and our grandkids. If you want to know God by heart, You need to think deeply about his sovereign control, his beautiful providence, that nothing happens by accident. John John Piper, few men alive in our day, expressed the wonder of God's sovereignty better than Pastor John Piper. But do you know that he didn't always believe in the sovereignty of God? Listen to what he said. When I started seminary, I believed in the freedom of my will, the sense that it was ultimately self-determining. I had not learned this from the Bible, he said. Of course, you can't. He said, I absorbed it from the independent, self-sufficient, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that you and I breathe every day in America. The sovereignty of God meant he can do anything with me that I give him my permission to do. Now, logic may lead you to believe that a man's will is ultimate, but he says scripture repeatedly declares that God's will is ultimate, that God is sovereign. 
And he says this, there is great good in the understanding and contemplation of the sovereignty of God. Talking about this, he said once, he went up to a professor in seminary that was trying to teach him this from Romans chapter 9. And he said, he caught him in the hall and he dropped a pen. And he said, I chose to drop that pen. He said, I was such a foolish young man, not realizing that God could have been at work in me as an agent to drop that bed. And then Piper says, it was a beginning then. He says, That's the, by the end of the semester, Scripture triumphed over my distorted logic. Scripture triumphed over my distorted logic. And it has been the beginning of a lifelong passion to see and savor the supremacy of God in absolutely everything. I, for one, am glad that he learned that. Piper's one of those guys that he writes a book, I read it. We just have a deal. He writes them, I read them. That's how it works. Piper tells of his calling to become a pastor so that he wouldn't just teach clearly, but preach truth passionately. And he wrote this, as I studied Romans 9, day after day, I began to see a God so majestic and so free and so absolutely sovereign that my analysis merged into worship. And the Lord said, in effect, I will not simply be analyzed. I will be adored. I will not simply be pondered. I will be proclaimed. My sovereignty is not simply to be scrutinized. It's to be heralded. It's not grist for the mill of controversy. It's gospel for sinners who know their only hope is the sovereign triumph of God's grace over their own rebellious will. I wish I could write like that. If you want to know God by heart and love God by heart and follow God by heart, then the God that you know must be the God of the Bible. And you need to be sure that the God of your heart is the God of the Bible and the God of the nations and the God of the planets and the God of the universe. And you need to be sure that your God is not too small. And you need to remind yourself, like the words of this wonderful old hymn, this is my father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that, oh, the wrong seems off so strong. God is the ruler yet. Spurgeon understood this. He was a champion of God's Sovereignty in all things. <laughs> he saw it in big and little things. He was preaching in the tabernacle once, and a dove flew into the tabernacle and began to fly around the room and distract <laughs> the worshipers. And he said this, I quote, Our friends need not be troubled by the flying of a dove. It will soon be out the window, no doubt. Let us believe that it has come as a messenger of good. Oh, that the blessed dove would his own self come from heaven and bring salvation in his wings. This is the way people talk when they saturate their hearts with the truth of God's sovereignty and of his providence. And Spurgeon said one night, he was preaching, and he just happened to be preaching. He just happened to be preaching about an immoral woman from Luke chapter 7. And there just happened to be a woman who just happened to be walking by the church door on the way to Blackfriars Bridge to throw herself in the Thames and die. And she thought, to prepare myself to meet God, I'll just step in and I'll listen to what this preacher has to say. He just happened to be preaching about a prostitute. He says, I dwell upon her sins, her washing the Savior's feet with her tears, the wiping of them with the hair of her head. And there stood the woman melted away with the thought that she should thus hear himself described and her own life painted. Oh, to think of saving a poor harlot from death and then, as God pleased, to save her soul from going down to hell. If you want to know God in your heart, and then you want to think deeply about God's sovereignty and about his providence.